Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Pottens. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Mike Bredesen, research agroecologist at the Ecdysis Foundation. Mike has been with Ecdysis since day one, and his passion for the work they're doing to change the way research and science interacts with farmers, well, it's just so evident. Ecdysis believes scientists have to become farmers to increase the relevance and the credibility of their research. In today's conversation, we talk about that timely relevant research Mike and the team there are doing that makes a real impact in regenerative agriculture. Once again, we see silos coming down as scientists and growers work together to find, as they say at Ecdysis, concepts, practices, and systems that are scalable and transferable to other operations and regions. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast. Today, I'm blessed to be joined by Mike Bredesen with the Ecdysis Foundation up in uh, South Dakota. Welcome, Mike. Uh, glad you could be here today. Thanks so much. And uh, what we like to do with our guests is we like to just uh, start with an open book. Uh, tell us uh, tell us your story, your why, uh, what what drives you, and, and what's kind of gotten you to where you are here today. Woo. All right. Well, I... You should, you should have booked me for longer than an hour. No, I'm just kidding. Well, we can do uh, two parts. No problem, Mike. Hey, great. Well, part one, uh, many, many moons ago. No. Uh, so uh, I'd say a good place to start would be um, uh, I went to college. Uh, South Dakota was the place that felt like home the instant I, I visited. Um, the people were, were just out of this world. I grew up in Minnesota and, and of course, Minnesota nice is the real deal, but I went out to South Dakota and just was sort of captured by the, uh, the pioneering spirit, uh, and the wonderful demeanor of the people that I encountered at South Dakota and, and at South Dakota state. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, they, they sold, they sold it really easy on me. So I went there, um, after my sophomore year, I was a biology major and everyone was telling me, well, you know, it's good to have some lab experience if you're gonna get into the field of medicine or whatever you're thinking about. So I was like, okay, well, this weird place everyone called the bug lab was hiring. Um, it was a USDA facility. So I went out and interviewed with some guy named uh, John Lundgren, Dr. John Lundgren. And they, for some reason, gave me an internship uh, that sophomore summer. And it was the first couple of days on the job working in that entomology lab under Dr. Lundgren and with his technician, Janet Fergan, and with a couple of people that were also technicians at the time and now have become absolute best friends of mine, uh, Dr. Ryan Schmidt, who is also on staff at Ecdysis now. So we really hung together. Uh, but it was just those first couple of days where we were out and about in a field with that was and something was out in this field, something I never heard of called cover crops. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, but we, we never heard of anything like that before. And 
my job was to simply go out there and count and collect insects. Um, and all those years growing up on a farm, it's crazy to think I never had an excuse or an opportunity or was ever told to simply get down onto the soil, the very thing that is the lifeblood of, of a farm, the thing I, you know, where I grew up and dig around in the soil um, and just make slow, simple observations. And that's what I was doing. And it absolutely blew, blew me away. Um, you know, I went from someone that thought that studying the, the human body and I wanted to be a chiropractor. Uh, I thought that was so cool. But when I looked down there and I saw these relationships and these wars being waged, um, alliances being made beneath that layer of thatch on the soil surface, um, it was cooler than any sort of computer game, any study that any class that I had ever taken before. It was just so visual, so fascinating. Uh, it really, it hooked me on, on day one. Um, so from that point forward, I, uh, long story short, uh, switched, switched focus in my major from being more um, human biology to more organismal and, and botany. Uh, stuck on with John for the next couple of years in that ent same entomology lab, doing incredible work, having an excuse to get out on all sorts of different types of farms, seeing what different farmers are doing across the region at the time, mostly uh, mostly South Dakota, meeting these you know sort of just unique personalities and pioneers. Um, it was awesome, and when John asked me to be a, a graduate student. I was like, oh yeah, that sounds good. If you wanna pay me to do a little bit of schooling, that sounds like a no brainer. Uh, went through my master's degree and towards the end of that, John uh, decided that uh, ICDISIS, where I currently am now, this ICDISIS foundation needed to happen. We always sort of had a spark that, um, that in our minds that if we really wanted to do the, the great work that we wanted to do, we couldn't be uh, where we were. We needed to be independent. Um, so John started that place up, asked me to come on as his first PhD student. Um, and five years later, a PhD later, and a lot of, lot of great work and progress later, here we are. Um, Full-fledged scientists with ecdysis, we're growing, bustling. And, uh, and looking forward to a, a expanding quickly bright future. It's amazing. So if I read it right, your, your official title is a research agroecologist. That's right, yep, so, research so agroecologist. That's what you get with your PhD where when you're an intern, you're a bug counter. So bug I mean, counter, that, that is yep. the entry level stage there, right? That's it, yep, yep. It's a big leap to that next level, you know. Well, <laughs> This is a, you know, being a bug counter should come with a warning. If uh, in one day's time there on your very first day, you can get so enthralled with it uh, that uh, it should, should it contain a warning uh, label there? Don't you think? Uh, I know it's a, it's a hazardous thing. It's like, uh, uh, it's like on the pack of cigarettes, you know, this is going to be addictive just so you know, <laughs> just so you know, you, you know. Well, the bug, the bug lab at uh, Brookings is an ARS lab, an entomology lab, and it's the uh, main, right, entomology lab for agricultural research service in the United States, if I remember correctly. And yeah. 
Yes. Uh, Dr. Lundgren, he, he, uh, he was a part of that lab at the time when he was at SDSU there, and they did some pretty amazing things. So We did, and, and, and it was really sort of that cutting edge, edge of the knife type research at the time was, you know, no one had heard of, of cover crops, period, you know, and, and to simply go out and, you know, after soybeans put a monoculture of a, of a single cover crop, it was revolutionary. You know, there was no one was doing that kind of stuff. Certainly no one was looking at at the data and the, and the science behind it. Uh, so we were doing some of the first work uh, looking at the response of corn rootworms uh, in corn following a cover crop, you know, and some of that early research. Uh, what, was, what were some of the results of that, that early research on the rootworm? This is interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, and John's a better person to ask because I was just a bug counter at the time. But uh Basically, what we did is we'd go out there, we planted uh, radishes uh, uh, late in the, in the soybean growing season, let them grow up. The next season, we'd have the farm manager plant corn, um, and then we actually infested the corn with tens of thousands of, of corn rootworm eggs. That's which nice of you, yeah. Kind of a wild thing to do. Don't tell the neighbors kind of a thing. Uh, that wouldn't make them too happy. But then later on in the season, take all sorts of soil cores and see whether or not uh, you're having, you know, elevated populations of beneficial predatory insects where you had the cover crop the year previous, and uh, whether or not you could find more corn rootworm larvae in one versus the other. And really, we found some some great promising results that early those early years when we really didn't know what the heck we were doing as far as establishing a cover crop. Uh, and managing that system, but you well, know, you're just... back. You're back to what you're talking about that voracious competition that goes on with insects, and what you're right. doing is create the environment and create the food source to promote the, you know, insects that are going to use the corn, the eggs that you're seeding yeah. <laughs> in the soil, uh, and, and so that was your whole purpose, right? To see if we can create the right environment to invite the beneficial bugs to take the pest bugs out of the picture. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned it, right? Creating the home uh, for the beneficials. And some people can be kind of intimidated, you know, by, by thinking, well, you need to do all these insane things and, and make sure the environment is just right in order to get a healthy population of beneficials. Um, and really, um, a person shouldn't feel that way because it's and anything's better than nothing, right? easy you know, and the like more it, diverse you can be the more rotation you can have is even better right but just a simple yeah. monoculture you know very popular now and, and, and it doesn't take much because insects are you know the most adaptable group of animals on the face of the earth and really you know that's that's just a, a telltale sign of how of how inhospitable we have made uh most con uh, conventional uh crop fields is that just doing those simple couple things uh, does make it, in fact, a, a hospitable place for those voracious predators and, 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 and basically gives them a home and, and a job. You know, all they want is a home and all they want is a job. So that's all we have yeah. to give them. So a takeaway here is, hey, uh, don't, don't worry about, um, worry about doing nothing yeah. versus you know, just do something, right? Do that's, yeah, try, try something, point. do just do one step and it makes a huge difference. The second, you know, and the second step won't be as big of a difference as the first step. You know, you have diminishing returns in this, just like anything else, but do something right in the cover crop world would be your takeaway. Yes. 
Yes. Yep. Do yeah. Worry about doing nothing. Yep. I, I think I'm going to steal that from you and, and use that in the future. Why well, I'd worry about doing nothing. Uh, worrying about having something work is not, you know, especially in those early stages where by now we have things, uh, you know, figured out to the point where it's right. Pretty, it's pretty well foolproof with the information that we now that we now possess out there. Anyone can do this, um, and it happens easily, and it happens so quickly, which is also such a, a fun result of the research that we have done. Is that uh, you know it's not it's not one year later, it's mm-hmm. not two or three years later. It's uh, you do see returns, you know, increase over time, but the biggest uh, advances that we see in an insect population happen in year one year one of cover cropping so it's happens fast it's it's fascinating life life begets life so um one of the things i wanted to talk to you about is a little bit of the ecdysis foundation and you you've been with them since day one when that started with uh, you know jonathan and such and really it came out of the result of uh, you know, and I'm going to say this, and it's kind of a summary of some of the things that Jonathan has spoke of from the Ag Emerge stage, but research uh, today at universities is driven by funding because it, it don't have the internal funding to do it. And, and uh, when we do a research study, we, we sponsor a, a grad level student, which generally means for a single study, 35,000 per year is our cost uh, mm-hmm. to do that. And, and pretty much any university, that seems to be the number. Uh, it's a little higher in California, but uh, when I when we're looking for uh, answers out of that, we we want we want to learn something, and so typically that's a product driven right um, type of research study because uh, we want to uh, have additional product sales to pay for that thirty five thousand dollars a year times three years uh, to yes. to 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 pay the funding. So when you're doing systems research or practice research to you know plant a cover crop. Um, there's the money's not there for that research. And um, so when you're looking at more holistic uh, practices or systems that requires a different approach. So, you know, taking that outside of the university into or ARS into a private foundation allows those stakeholders who are passionate about regenerative agriculture, uh, passionate about uh, ecosystem services, uh, planet health, uh, animal welfare, uh, people health, to contribute to an ecdysis so that you can do this type of research that just doesn't have a place. Is that, is that a good summary of what makes ecdysis different than university research is you're able to tackle things um, that are different because it's um, you're not the revenue to, to do the research is from basically donation versus uh, additional product sales. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, a fair summary. Um, I'd say that a, a big difference that I have seen uh, over the years is when we were uh, completely uh, grant driven, uh, grant project driven, um, you see in the research world when you're applying for these competitive grants, it follows a sort of uh, news cycle or something that's, that parallels a news cycle. Hmm. Uh, something that is new and sexy and getting a lot of attention. Sure enough, that next year, you're going to see a lot, loads of money for a very, very narrow subject. And uh, everyone and their brother and sister are, are applying for the same types of 
same types of projects and money, money to get the same types of, of work done. And, and, and every like research, that. you and know, yeah. they all have climate change component to them because that's a hot sure. button or, you know, that that's what you're saying, right? It's the, what's the new cycle worthy uh, that's right. thing. That's right. And, and what, and the biggest difference, and it's such a refreshing difference because you don't have to sort of chase down something that perhaps, you know, in your heart of hearts is, uh, is maybe driven not by uh, genuine purposes or, or you know from, from your communications with farmers and your work in the field that, you know, this isn't what we need to be working on. Uh, and it's kind of this, you have this sense of urgency and, and know-how of what you need to be working on, but no way of getting there because no one's willing to pay for it. And that's the difference now um, in the ICDISIS model is that we can pivot to working on things that we believe are so important based on conversation that I have today with you, uh, that, I, that I have at a field day with a group of farmers that are clustered together talking about a problem that no one's addressed before. And we can, and we can pivot to that and start making plans to answer those questions that day or the next day. You know, we've got a group of farmers here that are all wondering the same thing. Hey, who's willing to uh, host a, a couple of research uh, fields, you know, and, and that's the beauty. We don't have to spend this year working on, uh, you know, writing up a grant proposal for that specific uh, project and then hoping that we find a granting institution that right. kind of has a call for proposals that kind of sort of fits the project, but maybe not quite as much. So that's, it's a huge benefit that we have in, in our organization is being able to move quickly uh, and, and be dynamic. So in addition to the independent portion of it, it's the speed aspect. Cause like you said, if you wait, you know, take all the time to create the grant proposal, which that's very time intense to answer all the questions and budgets and everything. And then you get denied, <laughs> then you got to start over again. And yeah, plus yeah. It, it also gives you a more of a discovery opportunity, right? Because if you see something, you can just pursue it versus try to make it fit like you're saying. So I think that's a, a novel approach and it'd be really great if we could get back to that you know in our in our research labs it's it's just kind of gotten overtaken hasn't it you're right and and you know it's it's what um it's what universities used to do uh researchers correct were out on the land uh, my great friend that i work with dr ryan schmidt he, he's he's a history buff you know he talks about extension specialists, or not, not specialists, uh, extension researchers or university researchers back in the day, uh, hopping on trains and going from town to town on their, on their tours to speak with farmers and understand their needs uh, in their own fields, you know, and figure out what their problems were uh, right, right, from the, right from the farmer's mouths and being able to change their research program based on, on the needs of those farmers. That has since gone away. Um, and, and we're hoping we are succeeding in, uh, in taking, that, taking up that torch. It's one thing to complain about a problem, but what I love is you guys are addressing the problem and uh, provide, a, provide a viable business model, if you will, for, for that to, to work. So that, that's awesome. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. 
From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. So let's take an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the current research you've got going on with Ectisis, some of the projects you're involved with, and just maybe some of the aha moments you've seen this year in your work. Sure. And that, it's, it's a great question, a fun one to answer because um, at Ectisis, we've got, a, you know, we've got a load of people there. Some people are interested in graduate work. We've got a few graduate students, uh, a couple scientists, and we're hiring on more. And at Ecdysis, we really like to see, you know, we, we have big projects, you know, uh, w- with funding that, that need to be done. And, and we're all sort of all, t- all hands on deck on these types of projects. But in addition to that, um, we also have the freedom to let people follow their, uh, follow their interests, you know, and as a result, we've got, we, we get quite a bit of, of diversity in projects happening on right now. So we're ranging anywhere from, you know, people digging through cow pies, looking at the dung beetle community across a bunch of management regimes here across uh, the Midwest, uh, trying to figure out how uh, cattle, different types of cattle management and rotations are affecting resources for pollinators on pastures. So that is fascinating work that's being done. Now, Mike, uh, there, there is one thing possibly worse than being a bug counter in a field of cover crops. And, and that is being the bug counter in cow pies. You know, I know. We, I, we I, I don't to... know if you would have had the same passionate response if day one was go count the dung beetles in cow pies. <laughs> Maybe that maybe that's something we introduce on day two. There you go. Right. So, but talk about with comparing management schemes and the dung beetle count across different environments and such. Why is that important? Well, it, it is so important because you know uh, when a person hears, "Well, we need to get cattle back out into the pasture," you know, we, we shouldn't. Everyone, most people that think about uh, that think about this situation and, and understand. Um, land management and animal management know that animals ought to be out on pasture. Okay, well, that's a blanket statement that deserves a heck of a dive into because there's no one way to, uh, to manage animals and there shouldn't be, right? So we've all these different t- types of grazing management styles and each one of them uh, results in a slightly different plant community, okay? And what, what are these different plant communities? Are they dominated by grass? Is one style of man, grazing management going to promote more forbs, more legumes, uh, these things that are really necessary for a, a beneficial pollinator community, um, not just managed pollinators like honeybees, but also the native pollinator community, the flies and all the bumblebees and, and the ground nesting bees. So that's what some of the researchers, um, Ryan and Tia on staff are both working on that this summer, really excited to find out what uh, they're gonna find because it has huge implications for not only the, the native pollinators, but um, South Dakota year on year is one of the, you know, uh, the biggest honey producers and honey producers want to know um, when they're selecting their field sites to go to their, their bee yards to go drop their bees for the summer if they can screen those pastures a little bit and say, hey, this person over here is utilizing this um, sort of, uh, I don't want to say mob grazing, Ryan would probably, uh, Dr. Schmidt would yell at me for utilizing that, but adaptive management um, 
I know that my bees are going to be healthier. They're going to have the resources and diversity, floral resources that they need in order to be healthy. You know, those are the questions that they're trying to answer now and, and really finding some, some cool, cool results. So next on your docket needs to be uh, having a, a podcast with Tia and Ryan to talk about poop, uh, pastures, and pollinators. <laughs> the three P's. Yeah, yeah. Bugs and poop, pastures, and pollinators. I like it. So yeah. that's one. What's some of the other studies going on? I know there's an almond study going on. There's an almond study. Uh, we're also going to be starting uh, some grape work in California also as a follow-up to some of the stuff we're finding in almonds. Uh, the almond work. Um, we had a graduate student, Tommy, out in California work on it for the last three years and do absolutely just groundbreaking research in almonds. Um, there's not much work, if any, that had been done on regenerative almond orchards. Um, water's the big issue out there. So we're, we're trying to take a multifaceted approach, looking at all the dynamics of these almond orchards, how much water are, is being used in conventional versus regenerative almonds, uh, looking at the soil physics, the soil chemistry, uh, the bird communities, all of that on top of the insect, uh, uh, insect community above ground, below ground, uh, both, both uh, almond pests and also the beneficial insect community out there. Um, fascinating work, especially for a bunch of folks that uh, grew up in corn, soybean, wheat country to be able to get out there and expand into some of these other, other crops is absolutely fascinating. As a farm kid, it's a dream to get out there and see, you know, to see how our food is grown. You know, when I sit down as a as longer, the longer that I'm in this career, uh, when I sit down at the dinner table and I see almonds on my salad, you know, or, or I see broccoli and I, you know, I see all these different things that I'm eating. I say, you know, I know I've, since I've been, I've stepped foot in those fields. I know how they're grown and uh, it, it changes, you know, not only how you feel about uh, land management and how these different farms ought to be managed, but it really, you know, even go as far to, to change how you eat uh, once you have exposure to, to these, these different places and you know what they look like and you know what you want going into your body. Um, because you, you want to treat your body like, like some of these producers are treating their land, which is really, you know, that's, it, it's really amazing. I can't say enough for some of these producers and, and we ought to be, I know we're going down a rabbit hole here, but the way they care for the land is, it makes me want to care for, for my body and, and, uh, and care so much that I, that I look into what I eat, you know, take it to the next step. Uh, I know that was quite well, a rabbit. No, no, that's a great way to look but, at it. And, yeah. um, you know, that's what I, as a farmer, uh, with my farmer hat on, you know, that's the way we look at it too, is not only does it need to last for generations, it needs to be not just producing an okay crop. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like when we were talking about if, uh, with Jeff Moyer, he, he uses the, the term, if he, you know, you're, somebody asked how your marriage was, you said, oh, it's sustainable. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that probably wouldn't be too great. Right. So you want uh -huh. it, you want it improving, you want it growing, you want it uh, passionate, you want it living and, and changing over time. So I think that's a, uh, it, it's interesting on, on how we approach that, but there's a direct link and, and we know it between the, the soil microbiome, the plant microbiome, animal microbiome, 
you know, and, and the human microbiome and that they're all interconnected and, uh, we are what we eat. So it's, um, I think that's, you're right on, right on par there for being excited about seeing guys who are approaching soil from a different perspective, you know, being excited about eating that food. Absolutely. And, uh, there's, there's, there's millions of other people out there just like you. So it's an opportunity yeah, for farmers to connect with those people. We, we try our darndest as a human species to sort of remove ourselves from nature and, and function eco, ecosystems. And that hasn't worked out for us um, because no matter how hard we try and battle that tide, uh, we are always overcome by it, you know, and, and it's, it's just wonderful to have the privilege to, to go out and be a part of, of farms that are that, that have that realization, have made that realization and are, are wholeheartedly um, in, incorporating their lives more and deeper into the, the natural ecosystem. So back to other projects that you have going on as a group yeah. there at Ictisis um, that you're uh, exploring, excited about, what are, some, what are some other things happening these days? Yep, other things that are happening. So more more big picture stuff is we've got projects with, um, you know, uh, larger food companies, food entities, uh, groups that are interested in sourcing their ingredients for their products and their goods uh, from farmers that are using regenerative methods, mm -hmm. trying to fix carbon into their soils, trying to promote wildlife on their land, trying to purify and infiltrate water, recharge aquifers. Uh, companies realize that consumers are becoming more savvy. They want to purchase products that are produced more regeneratively. Um, and it's in their best interest as a company to, um, to, to go out there and find the farmers that are producing these goods and purchase them um, and hopefully purchase them for a premium because these farmers deserve it. And also it's, it's uh, in their best interest because farmers that are producing goods in, these way, in, in this manner, in a regenerative manner, that's, good to, that's pretty good food supply chain security for these food companies because they know that these farms are going to be more stable in rough drought years. Um, down the line, they're going to be profitable. And yeah, they, they, want, they want a secure supply chain and they realize it's a good business decision to go out and find these folks. Um, so that's, those are the kind of companies that we're also working with in many projects, going out, putting the numbers uh, on the ecosystem services that are being provided by the farms that they source their ingredients from and getting baseline data on farms that are transitioning to the regenerative model so that they can be included in this, in this sort of food chain. They, they want to be included in the food chain in the future. They don't want to be left in the dust. Correct. Those so are, I think it, it's kind of an interesting uh, paradigm that they're approaching because, you know, in the past we've had things where if you, you grow a certain uh, canning bean or if you grow a certain canning tomato or a certain sweet corn or, or whatever, there's a certain variety that, you, that they might, de might develop for the farmer, right? And then the farmer plants it uh, there are sugar beets, for example, they, this variety, they, they work with the farmer on what, what to do, and then they buy it back. And then they have the organic approach where it's like, okay, you can, you have an organic certification from a third party. And that's just basically, you can only do these inputs. It's an input differential. 
But what's interesting about what the consumer is asking for now is it's the cultural practice, right? What is the impact of the management and cultural practices that you're doing? And the food companies picked up on that. And now they're trying to figure out, okay, well, we're not giving them the seed to plant. Uh, you know, we're not a requirement of organic. So it's just this big question of what is regenerative? What is the impact? What, what does that mean? Because they're trying to create value, right? For what the customer wants. But, and I, I think that's, it's really fascinating what you said about the drought, droughtiness or drought hardiness of regenerative practices. That is true. And if you think about, they probably book a lot more acres than what they actually need. So if there is a drought, they have their, their consumer covered, right? Yes. So they're looking at making a more resilient system to where they don't have to, if you will, overbook on um, inputs. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a, that's an interesting, uh, so not only they're trying to create higher value product, but they're also trying to reduce their, their expenses at the same time. Yeah, reduce their risk, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, they, they, they want to secure that supply chain. And you brought up something really interesting, which is uh, to further on with this discussion about what we're excited for, is that um, we feel like, you know, as researchers, as a research entity, if there's any holes in the research, uh, we feel like we're not, you know, conducting our job, our jobs to the fullest, to our fullest ability, you know, and, and in the research field, we're oftentimes pigeonholed, uh, you know, as a molecular biologist of, you know, a certain strain of bacteria, or you're a, you're a carabid specialist, if you're, if you're an uh, entomologist, a carabid's a ground, a, a family of ground beetles. I was going to say, um, that's a, that's a specialized bug counter there, yes. Yeah, yeah, but that's, <laughs> but that's the field, you know, that's, right. that's the world we live in, um, and if you're doing a study on, as we were in the early days of cover crops. You know, if you go out there, okay, count the number of uh, spider families and number of carabid beetles, uh, uh, rove beetles out in this field uh, that has or doesn't have cover crops. And I publish a paper, there you go, wash my hands of it. Interesting cover crops, uh, you know, uh, eat more cornrowworm larvae. Well, that's cool, but think of all the questions that ought to have also been addressed, you know, in that right. study. We need to know that the economic considerations, mm -hmm. what, what is happening to the soil when we're, when we're doing this study, you know, we, we need to. Or because of that, you can raise a higher value crop with non-GMO or white corn, popcorn, those kind of things that are more affected by rootworms that maybe would not have been economically viable in the past, but because we changed this cover crop um, system and when you change one thing, you change everything. We changed the, you know, the, the insect community in order to allow us to do things we weren't able to do before. Absolutely. And, and we, we couldn't agree more. And, and we feel like, you know, we used to, our goal used to be, you know, gosh, we're not, we're not going the full distance. We need to go out and, and tell these people that are going to be reading our research studies, at least how the different plots yielded, you know, let's at least take it that far. Um, but at this point, we're starting to realize, well, that's, you know, yield, uh, yields just a word. It's not, it's taken completely out of context if you don't, and, don't, and doesn't mean much if you don't have that context. So we're, we don't feel accomplished in a study unless we are, are going out there and we're also in, in coordination with all of the uh, environmental data. We're collecting economic 
indicators from the farmer. We're collecting yield, crop prices, the market that they take to. Um, and, and then even for a step further on top of that, and this is getting into more of the questions that I get really excited about for the future, is what, what is regenerative ag doing, not just on the economic side of things of a farm, but the, the social impact that it's having on that household and also the economic and social impact of a community where that regenerative farm uh, has, is at, is established, you know, is it, um, and how is it affecting the local economy? Is it creating more jobs, more opportunities? You know, so we, we start, we start by counting bugs and, and we're already to how, <laughs> how creating an ecosystem that is highly functional for an insect community also translates to more groceries uh, being bought and sold at a local, you know, food cooperative and, and people being nourished and people being happy and more fulfilled with their jobs, you know, right. it's, it's quite, but that's, but that's the way research is headed. And in our opinion, holistic research uh, needs to be that way. And if it isn't that way, it's, it's lacking. And the good part about it is I think when you share that research and that, that holistic context of it, you know, how it impacts everything from, um, you know, the community down to the soil and yield and profit and such, I think it, uh, it gives farmers an opportunity to exercise the art of farming. And yeah. I think it allows them to have fun again. So several of the farmers we get to work with um, comment about, you know, wow, with a biological approach to farming, um, that farming's fun again. It's not just a, a recipe card that we got to run this tractor and spray this and, and do this. And then we repeat next year. It, it, there's a, uh, it's dynamic, it's changing, and we're learning new things all the time. So it, it's great to be able to make that farming fun again. Um, and what, so, you know, thinking about making that farming fun again, what, how do you think some of the things that you've seen in, in your, your tenure here um, that has really helped farmers farm better? What, uh, what are some things that, that you've seen on, with farmers that you've worked with to, to be doing things better? Yeah, so it, it all begins with um, something that we've already brought up at the beginning and that's starting, uh, it's starting and, and, and everyone's different, right? Some people, uh, John, Dr. London would probably disagree with me on this, but uh, I'll just give you my opinion is, when people start um, start relatively small um, with a with a with a management practice that is uh, manageable in in their own mind, and it's not going to cause uh, extra stress, but like you just mentioned, it might be something that could be actually kind of fun. Uh, boy, uh, when you have that first success, um, then farmers, it's like set it and forget it. You know, they're just they're the ones that are, you know, pushing you after that first year of, of you trying to get them to do something, you know, fairly simple. Maybe it's cover cropping or a pollinator strip and the observations that they make from that point, um, especially if you can make those observations together uh, and really understand and, and have, have, have the farmer understand some of the fun mechanistic side of things about why a certain practice is working gosh, I just take it and run because it, it does become so fun. So that's the, that's, you know, and I see myself as, as being a 
someone that can help in that conversation and has helped throughout the last uh, few years or my tenure, as you said, at Ecdysis is, is creating the comfort level for farmers that are skeptical to start a few things. And oftentimes it's, it, it is when we're in that small group of farmers at a field day and they're wondering, they're asking a, a question about cover crops and said, let's try it out. You know, we got, if you want to know the answer to this question, there's only one way to do it. And that's, and that's to put the numbers to it. So can we do a little bit of a corner of your field? Can we do a small field, something that, that you'd be comfortable trying something with? And after that first year, hand in hand, making sure it works, going out there, counting bugs together, your, your phone won't stop ringing from that point forward with new ideas and, and topics. And can we try this research project this year? And it's really, it, you know, it, bec it becomes overwhelming. There ought to be so many more, uh, you know, ecdysis foundations out there um, to, to address these because simply there's just so many questions to, to, to get after an answer. Well, and that's really why we started this whole Ag Emerge concept was, mm -hmm. you know, we knew that we only know so much as ourselves, but when we can reach outside to folks like you and, and Jonathan and, um, and, and reach to uh, other farmers, other thought leaders, other researchers, other ag technologists, and just bring in all these different perspectives and, and shatter the silos instead of just being the, you know, the one beetle researcher, you know, you know, really shatter yeah. these, these silos, we can, we can learn and advance quicker and with, with more holistic versus, you know, um, um, individualized solutions. So yeah, and an individual, uh, yeah, I'd like to bring up something you just mentioned there, individualized solutions. Um, farming, and I, I wrote a note about this, hoping that we would discuss it during the podcast, um, is that farming over the last hundred years has become, a, you know, and it's so sad, but it's become an isolating profession. Uh, farmers have, you know, went from really leaning on neighbors for so much. I mean, community was, was so strong at one point, uh, at least I think, you know, I, I talked to my grandfather and the amount of work and labor and equipment that was traded between neighbors when he was first starting out, uh, it, it was remarkable. They couldn't do it without each other. And I'll use a word that you, that you have used already. We, we've siloed ourselves uh, and independence is often you know, brought up as being a, a, good, a good thing, a positive thing. But when it comes to farming and, and doing things as a community, we've really siloed ourselves as an agricultural community and it's led to isolation. It's led to when we have questions, we go to uh, maybe some questionable, or, or we, we go to agribusiness that has question that, that may have uh, questionable motives instead of going to our neighbors that, that may have gone through something very similar and they've got other types of solutions or ideas or equipment or techniques that we might be able to use. That community aspect, which used to result in, you know, pseudo farm cooperatives amongst neighbors has eroded. Um, and, and, and I really think that regenerative ag is a pathway towards reestablishing those farmer networks and, 
and, and communicate webs of communication between farmers. And you see it when you go to a soil health uh, field day, you see it when you go to, um, to some of these, these meetings is that, my gosh, the, the communication that happens there, the network that's being built, the spider web, every strand is just beginning more and more com complex. And what I'd like to see is regenerative agriculture accepted uh, and, and practiced on a level where physical localities within, within locations, within counties, you know, there, there's enough of a groundswell where, where farmers can, can get together and, and bounce ideas off of each other. And it's happening in a few, in a few places uh, all over the country. And when I see that community happen, it's sort of like the edge of the waterfall, uh, you know, things move fairly slowly and thoughts take a while to develop and, and you have a lot of second guessing yourself when, when the water's moving slow, when you're isolated. But when you have that network of people, those thoughts, those ideas, that innovation happens at such a more rapid rate because you all of a sudden have the, the community support, you also have the infrastructural support of that local community. And it's really what we need if we're going to see regenerative ag adopted on, on, a, on a wide scale. We need to create these local communities. Can't be dispersed here and there. Um, we need it to be tight knit and it's happening. The reading clubs are starting all over the place. Soil builders clubs, coffee clubs uh, are happening. And at those points that it's like the center of a bullseye where you see a group that's gotten together, um, it, it just radiates out from that nuclei. Um, and, and it's something special to see, but it takes a group of people because this isn't an easy thing to do on your own, to go from uh, full-fledged conventional farming to, to diving into regenerative practices and changing, changing your mindset. Uh, it takes, it, it doesn't take, you know, there's a few early adopters that, that can, you know, not care about what the neighbors are saying, so to speak, but gosh, it takes a, a network of people and takes that, uh, that social support to really get a lot of folks behind this movement. Yeah, I agree. That's uh, some really good points there. And, you know, we've, we've done an, on our own farm offered to, we've seeded cover crops for neighbors. We have a, a roller that neighbors use and, and those kind of things. And it kind of, kind of helps it, but it takes a while you know, we're one of those guys, you know, that does all the weird stuff and, you know, kind of, kind of prove it out. But then uh, you, you see others starting to adopt uh, grazing. You see others starting to do more cover crops. So uh, it, it's great. You know, I'm happy for anybody to copy what we're doing. I mean, that's, it, it's no secrets out there. Everybody can see what's going on. So I yeah. think that's a, that's a, but you're right. I like your stream analogy. It just takes time to build momentum. Yeah. And once it goes, it goes quick. So we just need to make sure that we, we connect with people like you and, and others on our, our team and throughout our networks to be able to make sure that we do it right and have as few of failures the first time as possible. So absolutely, uh, that's, Doc, that's document, the, document the heck out of it uh, so that you know, we, can, we can experience those growing pains if there are any um, and make that transition a smooth one for the yep. next generation of farmers or the, the middle adopters and late adopters that are coming down the pike. The other thing I contend too, is if you just get the information out in front of a farmer is that, uh, and, and the consequences of, of what they're currently doing or the benefits of what they could be doing, 
I think they'll, they just innately will choose the right thing. Yes. There's always bad apples in, in every group of, of people, you know, farmers or not, but I'm just saying, if you give them the right information and, you know, currently the information is coming from agribusiness, like you were mentioning, uh, you know, ag chem companies. But one of the things that Jonathan talked about was the, you know, seed treatments and neonics and that was kind of precipitated some uh, uh, things there, but, you know, just the, the, fascinating to me that the neonic content on one seed of corn can kill i think he said something like one and a half million bees it's just mm -hmm. crazy what we're doing and we got 90 million acres of that out there so you know we made the commitment uh you know we've had no neonic seed treatments you know for for two years yeah we we have some stand issues we have some wireworm issues we take a little bit of a yield hit but you know i think when you tell a farmer the right thing um, it, it might bug them for a while, you know, as they're pouring it into the planter. And after you do it for a year or two after planter, it's like, you know, I just, I can't do that in good conscience anymore. Right. So I think that's important about the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, I would, yeah, to, to add on that, just a side note on that, the, the neonic thing, cause it's one of my passions. Uh, toxicology is one of my passions as a researcher. Um, and, uh, after doing some research on a farm nearby Ecdice, it's one of my good friends he's part of our soil builders club coffee group a wonderful thinker and innovator um he you know a couple of years back was the first year he transitioned to naked seed um and you know how hard it is to find naked seed yeah you gotta oh, look it yeah. is a pain to get naked seed and especially get naked seed in good hybrids it, it's it's a challenge yeah, you ask ask around early, you know, and and it can be done. I think that uh, actually on the Ecdysis website, plug for Ecdysis, we can we have a, a database of um, seed suppliers where where farmers can get uh, untreated seed. So if folks are interested, go there. Uh, there's a, a couple other lists that exist out there too. Um, I think maybe. PFI practical farmers maybe has a list too. So there's a couple lists out there. If people are, you know, jumping into this blindly, um, you don't have to, to jump into it blindly. There's a couple of lists out there of, of companies that'll work with you anyways. And they're pretty extensive lists. So start there. Um, but, uh, this, this friend of mine, Aaron, who, um, is just a fantastic cover cropper interceding constantly, uh, non-GMO stuff, just wonderful pushing the envelope all the time. He said, you know, he felt he was nervous, you know, to, to buy the untreated seed, but he said it's the best feeling he's had in years pouring seed into the planter. Yeah. And, said, and even for yourself, you're not getting it on your hands. You're not breathing yep. it. You're not sitting in it all day long. It's not in your clothes. You're not taking it home to your family. You're not getting yep. it in the family's wash, um, washing machine. You're not, yeah. your kids aren't playing in it. I mean, it's just, yeah, he why, said, why, why are we acceptable having something so toxic? Right. He's I wasn't everywhere. wearing, wasn't wearing long rubber gloves and glasses and a mask. He's like, you know, I was just out there enjoying the day, pouring in seed and it just felt right. <laughs> you know, follow, follow your gut. Yep. That's, that's good advice. Any other, uh, aha moments that, uh, you can think of that just have really stood out to you here in, uh, in, in your research that you've done, uh, you know, the Neo Nick kind of hit a little bit of a, a passion point there. Any, anything else that you think farmers need to know and keep sure, you know, 
I could talk about specifics and whatnot. Um, I could talk about some ahas I've had in the neonic world. Uh, did some interesting work um, looking at, uh, I did some work in wheat and uh, sunflowers and also interseeded cover crops on how long uh, seed treated neonics hang around for. Uh, so I would go out there and I, I would have, I would collect plant tissue all summer long from wheat and sunflowers and clear through, I'll just use sunflowers as the example, clear through um, anthesis or pollen shed on sunflowers. I could uh, still detect um, neonics at pretty good levels in the, uh, in the leaf tissue of sunflowers, you know, right through the, right through the, the time of year when when those plants are attracting insects like crazy and pollinators just like wild. So that was pretty fascinating. The whole point of having a, 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 a you know, a, a, a rate of insecticide on a seed treatment is so that it is diluted or metabolized by the time pollen shed <laughs> happens or anthesis. That's what we call anthesis is pollen shed uh, because that's a high insect traffic time. Um, and, and we don't want those insects that are utilizing pollen as a resource to get knocked back by an insecticide. Uh, but I found that, you know, in, in our, in our conventional sunflower fields treated with neonics, well, we can still, we can see, we still are possessing uh, neonics in, in the, in the plants at that anthesis time of year. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe even more interesting to me was I did uh, my, my PhD was looking at the insect community of corn monocultures and then cornfields that had interseeded uh, a diverse uh, cover crop mixture interseeded at a, the about about the two v2 to v4 stage uh looking at that insect community um and i was out there looking at this this insect community i was like you know i had these flax plants were flowering down the center of of uh, a canopied corn canopied corn rows and field peas were going nuts and they were getting all sorts of insect attention which is exactly what i wanted i mean i was finding scads more insects in my interseeded cover crop fields compared to the corn monocultures which is really intuitive but it was important uh, for me to document that but i thought to myself you know what if these corn plants were treated with a with a neonic uh, seed treatment what would happen uh, because I'm sure these interseeded cover crops, the roots are going all over the place. I'm sure they're picking up whatever's in the soil water. You know, they're sharing the same uh, rhizosphere as, as these corn plants. So sure enough, I, I went out and I collected the interseeded cover crop tissue throughout the whole season in a field that I knew was treated with the neonic seed treatment on the corn. And throughout the entire, th throughout corn harvest, throughout the entire season until frost, basically, uh, into October, I was able to, to measure very high levels of neonic seed treatment that was treated onto the corn seeds, but had traveled the 15 inches uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and was systemic throughout the, uh, throughout the interseeded cover crop. So it was fascinating. You know, we, we have to reassess uh, what we're doing on multiple levels when we're switching to a more regenerative model of, model of agriculture. You know, if, if we're providing homes for insects, um, are, we, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing them, are them a good service if we're, if we're also utilizing a neonic seed treatment? Are we, are we providing the well? Are we providing the home? Is that a clean home or is, or is it a home that has a pernicious amount of, of, a, of a toxin there? 
right? So that was a really aha moment for me. Um, is and it all it all stems back to just holistic management. We, yeah. we can't change one, can't tweak one little thing on the farm without looking at things in the whole picture. You right. Know? And that was a great example in my mind. And I think if you you also think about that too, you know, listen to what Mike just said. He said all the way through harvest, he was detecting these levels. And the sad part is, is that we can see them in subsequent years. Yeah. Seed treatments. And then the other thing we've done too with these seed treatments is we've gone from the 250 version as the standard and likely yeah. what was being done at the time that you were doing your research. And now today the 1250 version, 5X the amount is the standard. So the yeah. persistence is is linear there for that. Uh, and it, it's a, it's, there's a weaning off effect. And, you know, one of the things that really, another thing got me to switch from neonics was everybody's having problems with slugs and cover crops. Sure. And then a researcher out in Pennsylvania, I forget the name right now, did the work finding that the slugs would take up the neonics uh, from the, from the crops and it would be in their slime. It wouldn't hurt the, you know, you have to have a different mode of action to kill a slug, yep. but the ground beetles would eat the slug, which is the natural predator for a slug as a ground beetle they would eat it, they would ingest the neonic and it would kill the ground beetle. That's right. So by putting the neonic seed treatment on the corn, uh, now we had we killed the predators, the beneficials, uh, because ground beetles perfectly fine for corn. Um, and we'd kill that beneficial that was taking out the slugs. And now we got these slug issues everywhere. So cross your fingers, I haven't had any slug issues. But that's yeah. because we're not hopefully because we're not using neonics. And we've certainly right. had overwintering volunteer wheat, volunteer rye, those kind of things where we would have a, a great opportunity for slugs and we haven't. Now our yeah. firm, we've had that, but we haven't had the slug issue. So, so the, it's uh, fascinating, all that interconnectedness. The the paper you the work was done by Douglas and Tooker out of Pennsylvania. Uh, fantastic research, wonderful researchers. And who would have guessed? Who would have guessed the neonic would be systemic into the slug through its slime and then kill the ground beetle with its neonic infested slime? Sure. That's a, that's a persistent chemistry. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, there's, I mean, we're starting to get into research studies now where I saw a paper not long ago about um, uh, the potential for, for human health negative effects of, of neonics because of uh, slug populations increasing to the point where, so slugs can be a intermediate host for certain parasites like you know, nematodes, protozoans, things like that. And the slug population had increased so much in certain areas of the world due to, um, due to their predators being removed by insecticides that these slug populations are just exploding. And as a consequence of that, the human diseases that, uh, are a partial, that are partially carried by these slugs were also increasing significantly too. So you want to talk about multi-layered uh, effects of of what we're doing to our soils and our landscapes. Um, we could talk all day. It's so fascinating, but these are things that people ought to realize that one little you know, bit of powder on a seed seems pretty innocent. Uh, and we do, we, are, we desensitize ourselves to it um, when really it's, we shouldn't do that, right? We, we really need to highlight, no, like this is not, a normal thing. These these things that we are utilizing aren't just fairy dust. Uh, they're real things that have real impacts on real nerves of real animals and real humans. 
uh, and there are consequences and we should all feel responsible for those consequences. And we, we should know that before, you know, we should be able to swallow that pill, so to speak, when we purchase our seed. And, and, <laughs> and it sounds harsh, but dang it, we need, to, uh, we need to hear these things and we need to, we need to be accountable. We need to take responsibility. Yep. Not just, uh, you know, believe what everything that we're told we need to trust, but verify. And then uh, I think you said it very well there. It's, there's tremendous, tremendous impacts on that. We're just starting to hear some of the things about glyphosate. And we used, we knew those things 22, 23 years ago is when right. that was first broke on the scene. The neonic thing, uh, Dr. Lundgren really led the charge on that. And what's that been, 10 years ago? So I yeah, mean, there's, five, to, there's, five to 10 years ago, there's yeah. a, there's a certain lag time, but we need to get rid of that lag time because the unintended consequences that we're going to face as a, as a species, yeah. <laughs> and it, if we want to be greedy towards our, just ourselves, let alone everything else on the planet, or, uh, there's tremendous, tremendous uh, problems there. So, yeah, yeah, we, and, and that's okay. You know, like you said, we need to be greedy. Sure, if that's what it takes for us to be greedy about preserving the human species, well, that's okay. That's still that we're not just talking about uh, bees and butterflies because we think they're beautiful. Like we, <laughs> we're talking about ourselves here, you know, and it's, and it's okay to be, we need to be selfish. Um, yeah, so, you know, quit, quit bitching about the fact that, oh, they're going to take my seed treatment away. No, they're just keeping you from dying. So yeah, there you right. go. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, no, um, uh, fascinating. Um, fascinating uh, discussion here today. Obviously, you can go to ecdysis, and we're going to have you spell that for all the listeners because that's a little bit tougher to spell. It's E-C-D-Y-S-I-S, -S, correct? That's correct. And what yep. is ecdysis being uh, uh, for the people who aren't as in love with bugs as what you guys are? Tell us what ecdysis is. It's kind of like anthesis. It's a big fancy word. It's a big fancy uh, bug word um, that, you know, it's we well, you know, when we started ecdysis, we're looking around for different words to use, and it's kind of a fancy science term, you know, thinking that we're going to be this, you know, big fancy research outfit. And turns out we talk to a heck of a lot more farmers than we do other researchers, which is really a good thing. Uh, but ecdysis is, and it, and it's okay. It's it's a good that we all learn new words, and maybe uh, it's better that someone thinks of ecdysis and it's kind of a head scratcher. So maybe it helps us be remembered a little better. But anyways, ecdysis is a term for the final molt of an insect. You know, insects have the skeleton on the outside of their body. They can't grow up like humans do and keep that skeleton inside them all the time and it grows with them. Their skeleton hardens on the outside of their body. They've got to bust out of it if they want to grow. And that process of busting out of their old skin in order to grow is called ecdysis. So it's pretty symbolic um, for the work that we're doing, trying to get done. Um, and it's, it's a great, it's a great term. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great word for exactly what we do. It is. And uh, we'll have the links to ecdysis and also blue dasher farm in the show notes here. Anything else you want us to make sure we include Mike? No, no. I think that we, we did a great job today. I, I thank you guys so, so much for reaching out. Um, you know, expanding opportunities and educational opportunities uh, and, and just opportunities to connect and to create more network connect connections in this group 
in this movement of, of Regen Ag is what we need. So we need, we need folks like you having more discussions, bringing more to light and, and developing community. That's what we need right now. And you guys are doing a great job of it. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you and the entire team there and the work foundational work that you're doing to, to make these discoveries that uh, probably are, aren't always going uh, with the current and uh, help us to know that we, there are unintended consequences of what we're doing. But more importantly, looking at things we can do uh, in order to make unintended benefits to what we do. So uh, I'm pretty excited about that. And, and thank you for your time. And I look forward to continue to working with you and the entire team there at Ecdysis. And, and uh, thank you so much for everything that you've done. Can't thank you enough. It's been awesome. Okay, take care. It's so much fun to hear the passion Mike and his team have for the work they're doing. And the key factor of being able to quickly pivot to research that is relevant and necessary as they help growers find those concepts, practices, and systems that are scalable and transferable. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement the soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm and there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.